Oh, Father, we do praise you this morning because it is in you that we live and breathe and find our moving and our being and our existence. It's in your resurrection, Jesus, that we find life and eternity, that we know forgiveness of sins, that we are cleansed and made whole and born again, that we are given a living hope. That there is no fear of death anymore for us. Oh Father, a thousand words cannot communicate the praise that you're worth and the praise that you deserve. A thousand thank yous cannot adequately convey our gratitude to you. Would you so kindly just look at the desire of our hearts. And see what eagerness we have to praise you and to thank you and to glorify you for your work through your son on the cross and in his resurrection. Father, we have many needs this morning. And you know them all. We ask that you would meet them. And that for us as a church, you would infuse us with life and passion and devotion and energy for the resurrection and because of the resurrection. Let us not be a stale, stagnant people with no reverence for your word, with no emotion for the resurrection, with no zeal for what you've done for us. But instead, let the truths we consider this morning stir us up by way of reminder, stir us up into praise and gratitude and mission. Let us not read a familiar text so casually this morning, Father, but send forth your spirit and make it gripping and compelling and living and active. And change our hearts and our minds. These are things that are far beyond us, beyond us Father, but they're, they're easy for you to accomplish. And we ask that you would do that. That you'd bless this time by striking our hearts deeply with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would please take your Bibles with me and open them to Luke chapter 24, the very last chapter of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 24. And up front, I will say this morning, please bear with me, because I've asked myself countless times this week, what do you say about the resurrection? How do you condense that down? What points do you emphasize and what points for time's sake do you leave out? And, and how do you wrestle with it and make it compelling? And I fear that I could easily do an inadequate job. I don't know that it takes much convincing. At least I hope it doesn't take much convincing to tell you that this passage we come to today in Luke 24 is what our entire Christian faith is built upon. 
It's the culmination of this gospel. It's what we've been building to. It's, it's why Luke is writing to bring us to these verses. Chapter 24, verse 1 through verse 12. He's bringing us to this text. It's what he wants us to see out of everything. It's his main point of the whole gospel. And that's true of all four gospels. All four gospels build to this singular event of Christ's resurrection. Every writer, John, Luke, Mark, Matthew, they want us to see this truth about Christ. In fact, it's the singular message they proclaim in the book of Acts, as we'll talk about later. So I thought it fitting, before we get into the text this morning, to just establish a little bit of its importance for us by way of other texts. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 being the chief one. That's Paul's lengthy exposition or teaching on the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he teaches on Christ's resurrection, the nature of Christ's resurrection, the importance of Christ's resurrection to our Christian faith, and then what it means for us, uh, what its benefits are, and what it will mean for our future and our eternity. In short, that since Christ resurrected, we too will resurrect in the end. But just... Uh, in, a, in a negative way that he paints it here, just for clarity's sake, let's read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 through 19 to establish uh, just how important this account is of Christ resurrecting. In verse 14, he says, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ is still dead and in the tomb and not resurrected, we're doing all of this for nothing. And, and it amounts to nothing. And it means nothing. And it accomplishes nothing. Verse 15, he says, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's, that's pretty important, right? And Paul emphasizes the resurrection here above everything else. If there is no resurrection, then there is no meaning of the burial. There is no meaning of the cross. There is no meaning of the perfect life. There is no meaning of the birth. And there is therefore no meaning of Luke's gospel. And no claim of Christ is true or worthy to listen to. Because if Christ is not resurrected, we have no salvation. We're still in our sins. And the faith that we claim, and the faith that we hold to, and the faith that we practice is futile. It accomplishes nothing. If Christ is still dead, you and I are wasting our lives. And he even says we're found to be lying about God. He goes on in verse 19, and you know this very well. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ isn't resurrected, and if that resurrection isn't the center of our worship and our walk with God, then what are we doing here? 
Because Paul says none of it matters. Well, he says all of that in a negative sense. In other parts of this chapter, namely verse 35 through um, 57, 58, he says it in a positive sense. If we remove the resurrection, we have nothing. But if the resurrection is real, he goes on to say we have everything. In verse 47 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Again, because Christ is resurrected and been glorified by the Father, we too who are in Christ will be resurrected and glorified by the Father. He goes on in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death where is your victory? O death where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is saying in that chapter in a nutshell. If the resurrection isn't true, we have nothing. If it is true, we have everything. We have the victory through Jesus Christ. We have life. We have changing. Transformation. We have salvation from sin. And a faith that's not futile, but real. And a preaching that's not in vain, but active and ordained by God to save the souls of men. A preaching that affects change in the heart. This resurrection of Christ, if it be true, it changes what you and I call worship. And what you and I call sitting under preaching. And what you and I call walking with God. Peter chimes in in his letter. First Peter chapter one, he talks about the benefit of the resurrection, attributing its importance. Chapter one, verse three, he says this. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You and I are born again to a living hope only by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And we could spend the rest of this morning looking at text after text after text after text. Where the New Testament tells us we have everything we have in Christ because he's no longer dead but risen. 
over and over and over again. The New Testament is screaming to us. We don't have a dead Savior. We have a living Christ. John MacArthur says this about the Lord's resurrection. He says, The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most significant event in history. Central to God's redemptive plan and the foundation of the gospel, the resurrection is the essential truth apart from which there is no Christianity. It is the essential truth apart from which there is no Christianity. And so it's with that bearing in mind, we come back to Luke 24 and we find the most important account related to us. Luke's account in verses 1 through 12 is not exhaustive. None of the four gospel writers give an exhaustive account of the resurrection of Christ. There are things that all four of them have in common. There are some things that only some of them have in common. And then there are details that are unique to each one of them. What's striking about all four resurrection accounts is that they lack significant detail. We have a lot of detail, especially from Luke, in regards to other moments and, and teachings and miracles of Christ. The resurrection is absent of a lot of those details. There's a lot of mystery surrounding it, a lot of blank space, a lot of holes that aren't filled in, and they won't be filled in. Nonetheless, Luke is driving us to this point of considering not just factual evidence here, but really the truth about Christ and even more so the claims about Christ. Like the other gospel writers, Luke's not calling us to just see historical narrative and factual evidence, but he's calling on us to believe his account, believe the eyewitnesses, and thus believe in Jesus as the one who's living and worthy of your faith and, and trustworthy and the only one who can save. So we have to ask ourselves questions based on this account. Is Christ reliable or not? Is Christ credible or not? Is He trustworthy or not? Is He the Savior or not? Is Scripture itself accurate or not? Is our salvation real or not? Those are all answered in Luke 24, 1-12 as we consider this resurrection account. Look in verse 1 with me. Luke sets this in stark contrast to the preceding text, the Lord's burial. He uses this word B-U-T. So the Lord is buried in verse 53. Joseph takes him down from the cross, wraps him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. The stone is rolled in front. The tomb is sealed. They go rest on the Sabbath. But this interruption to the burial of Christ but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee 
that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered His words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. You know what's strangely absent from this text? Is Jesus. He's not in this account. In fact, his name's only mentioned once in this account. He's not found speaking anywhere in this account. I think Luke does that on purpose. Luke's intent here in in my mind is to get us to be in the scene with these eyewitnesses. He wants to push us into this moment. And he wants us to feel the absence of Jesus much like these women would have. Because by verse 1, they're approaching the tomb on an early Sunday morning. And they're going to have this gaping hole in their heart when they realize Jesus is not present. And we too get that sense as we read this text. Jesus is absent. He's gone. He is not here. These women, I think out of an act of love, devotion, and courage, get up early. And they make their way to the tomb. The other gospel accounts say they even get up before the sun. We have this image that as they're traveling down the road, the sun is rising and they enter into this garden on this morning, Sunday morning. They've not thought through their plan very well. Mark tells us that they begin wondering on the way to the garden. How are we going to roll the stone away? It tells us that their desire outweighed their rationale. That they had desired to honor the Lord more than they really thought through their plan. And so certain that Christ would be there, they set out. Tying specifically back to verse 56, they take the spices that they had prepared. Which is honestly a sign of a lack of faith. They fully expected Jesus to be in the tomb. Forgetting what he had said that on the third day he'll rise. But as they draw near, they find the stone is rolled away from the tomb. And all of a sudden, they're overcome, no doubt, with a fearful thought that grave robbers have come and messed with the Lord's tomb. And hopefully not, but maybe have messed with the Lord Himself. In verse 3, they run into the tomb And they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Their fears have been realized. Jesus is not where we expect Him to be. The language Luke uses for that phrase, did not find, is very specific for Him to use. It doesn't mean that Jesus is hidden, but it means that He's totally, wholly, and completely absent. It means that He's not just misplaced, Or that they stumbled into the wrong tomb. It's that he's totally gone. He's not here. Nowhere to be found. 
And quite understandably, Luke describes them in verse 4 as perplexed. They've just made a startling realization. The tomb is open. And even more startling and more shocking, Jesus is gone. Their mourning plans have just drastically changed. As have their lives, though they don't recognize that yet. Their spices all of a sudden mean nothing. Their desire to honor the Lord's body is all of a sudden removed. And their perplexity in verse 4 tells us that they don't have a mental category for what is happening to them. Their minds are likely racing, but no explanation has seized them. And so they're found in verse 4 in a state of shock that will only be driven to more extremities, more extremes. In verse 4, two men stand by them. These are angelic beings. Luke describes them as men, but it's quite obvious that they're angels. They're described, their clothing is described as dazzling apparel. It's meant to convey heavenly splendor. And it drives these women to, to not just shock, but verse 5, to fear. And they're frightened, and they bow their faces to the ground. So we, we find ourselves in some details about these eyewitnesses, who are the only eyewitnesses, as we mentioned last week, to all of the moments, important moments of Jesus' passion, His, his trial, His crucifixion is death is burial now is resurrection the details are around them to paint us a picture that we can enter into there's this moment where their fears are realized christ is gone his body is removed and now there's these two heavenly supernatural beings and we are flat out terrified and all they know to do is fall to the ground and hit the dirt in this empty graveyard. And uncharacteristically, the angels respond. I say uncharacteristically because most other accounts, when angels appear and people are frightened, what do the angels say? Do not be afraid. God has a message. Do not be afraid, I'm sent by God. These angels don't say that. Instead, they say two things. They first issue forth a mild rebuke to these women. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why do you think you will find the living in a graveyard? That statement, though um, kind of vague, tells us something about the nature of Christ. Why do you think you can find the living one here in these tombs? The living one isn't in the dead. The living one doesn't live among the dead. The living one doesn't stay dead. He's the author of life. The victor over death. Why do you suppose you can find the living among the dead? Would have been a shocking statement, no doubt. Leon Morris Apley says these angels, they get right to the root immediately. They're not beating around the bush. 
They're not hiding the fact that Christ is alive. They quite clearly say he is someone who is vastly different from everyone else. And you should know that he's calling out their belief. Didn't you believe in him? Didn't you follow him? Don't you know him? Why do you think you might find a living among the dead? It tells us that Christ being in the tomb is, in one real sense, an oxymoron. He will not stay here. He will not dwell here. So there's a mild rebuke issued forth at the end of verse 5. In verse 6, there's this miraculous declaration. He is not here. Words that should be etched on every regenerated heart. He's not in the tomb. He's not dead. He's not buried. He's not in the grave. He is risen. That statement, church, heralded first by these angels, is what our entire faith is built on. He is risen. He's the victor over death. The sufficient sacrifice for sin. The propitiation for God's wrath. The author of life. Who gives it to all those he redeems. The firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might be preeminent, supreme. Everything that we sing about Christ, everything we read about God, everything we know about the redemptive plan of God to save humanity is found here, is fulfilled here in those words. He is risen. And if you will etch anything into your heart, let it be those few words there. He is risen. Literally, in Luke's language, it says he has been raised. It's a divine passive. Which tells us God has raised him. In fact, in the Bible, all except for a few places in the Gospel of John, all other places in the New Testament reference God raising Christ. Generally, the power of God and then more specifically, the father raising Christ. Which is a huge key and clue into the fact that the resurrection is God's validation of Christ's sacrifice and the vindication of Christ's condemnation and execution. In other words, when God raises up Christ, he's declaring to the world, I am pleased with his offering. My wrath is satisfied. Sin is atoned for. So we read here, He is risen, which tells us our Lord is not dead. He's alive. We have a living faith. We're born like Peter said to a living hope, but we read the, the divine passive in it as well. God has raised Him, which means His death, just a few verses earlier, is completely sufficient, totally satisfying to the justice of God and able to save. God has validated Him. Furthermore, the angels go on in verse 6 
he is risen. And then they say, remember. And it's not a question, do you remember? It's a statement or command. Remember. Remember how he told you. While he was still in Galilee. That the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And be crucified and on the third day rise. That's a comprehensive declaration of of Christ's suffering, isn't it? And these angels tell these women, remember what he said to you. This is why your spices are an element of little faith. And this is why you deserve a mild rebuke for looking for the living among the dead. Because you ought to remember what Christ has said. One writer this week noted that any time we forget the writings of Christ, we often confuse his providence in life. Or is working in life. And that's what these women did. They tried to interpret the working of God apart from what Christ had already taught them. There are several places that we could turn to. I just want to turn to a few this morning in Luke's gospel specifically. Luke chapter 9. Verse 22, Jesus is speaking. And he says... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. For Christ teaching His disciples, it's no secret. Death and suffering is coming, but so is the resurrection. As early as or as late as chapter 18. Verse 32. Well, let's back up into verse 31. Jesus is speaking again, and he takes the twelve and he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. There, by Christ's own words, he's saying, This isn't just my prediction, it's the prediction of Scripture. Everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. The angels call these women to, rem- to remember, because it's no secret, Christ didn't hide his plan, he didn't hide his agenda, he laid it out, suffering is on the horizon, <clears throat> but the resurrection is coming too. And since the resurrection proves those predictions to be true, it proves all his other claims to be true as well. Everything Christ has said about himself, everything that Christ has taught is found to be true because of the resurrection. If Jesus is still in the grave and our faith is futile, we ought not listen to anything he says. But if the resurrection is real, We ought to wisely consider everything he says and know it to be true and trustworthy and worthy of obedience. It also means here that these angels, they're not proclaiming a new gospel, are they? They're proclaiming the same gospel Christ proclaimed. Suffering Messiah and a resurrected Christ. All of this boils down to to mean here the This response of the angels. So 
Remember, we have these women who are fearful. They're shocked. They're confused, perplexed. Then they're afraid. They bow their face. And the angels respond with these very clear statements. You don't seek the living among the dead. He's not here. He's risen. Remember, he told you this many times before, even while he was still in Galilee. All of that to say to these women and to you and I, this is not a time to be frightened. This is a time to rejoice. And this is a moment of praise. And this is a moment of celebration. Don't be afraid. Don't be perplexed. Don't be confused. Don't be shocked. Your Savior is risen. And He's risen just as He said. And He won't live among the dead. He's alive. These angels are proclaiming something unlike anything that's ever happened before. And, he, and they want these women to see that this isn't something to run and hide from. This is something to dwell in, to rejoice in, to stand upon. For this resurrection of Christ, it's unlike any other ordinary scene or any other ordinary resurrection. In fact, it's unlike all the other resurrections that have happened before Christ and after Christ. You know there have been other resurrections, correct? Peter resurrects some people in Acts. Paul, if I can use the word comically, resurrects this guy. He was preaching too long. The guy fell asleep, fell out of the window and died, which is a clue to all preachers. And Paul resurrects him from the dead. Gives him life. Jesus resurrects people, children, most notably Lazarus and John. Lazarus has been dead four days. And Jesus calls him out of the tomb and he's still wrapped in his linen shrouds. In fact, right before that, he tells his sisters, Mary and Martha, who are weeping. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. There have been other resurrections, but there have been no other resurrections like Jesus. For all those other people that we read about were resurrected back to their normal way of living. Christ is resurrected in glory. And all of those other people are resurrected back to their normal way of life. They are who they were. They're still sinful, still in need of God's mercy. And their resurrection has no real effect other than emotionally upon the people around them. Christ's resurrection is so different, it has effect on all humanity. And He's not resurrected to a normal, ordinary existence. He's resurrected to a perfect state of human living as God originally designed and intended so that all others who are found to be in Him might be resurrected to a perfect state of human living as well. This is a new resurrection. This is a different resurrection. And these angels are telling these women, rejoice and be exceedingly glad and celebrate and praise God because this is a different rising from the grave. This is a resurrection that sets us right with God. Not only is your Master and your Lord and your Savior victorious over this tomb and, and victorious over that cross and victorious over death, but He has also made a way to God. 
so that now through him you are uh, you have a, a right standing before God. In fact, we could say this declaration by these angels in five, six and seven. Is what makes the gospel good news. What they have to say about Jesus rising from the grave makes the gospel worthy to believe. Because of what Paul wrote in chapter 4, verse 25 of Romans, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's what these angels are declaring. This is a new, different resurrection. Where life can be found here now. Another writer who found it to be quite fitting that these two angels were the ones who were the first heralds of Christ's resurrection. His name is Baumgart. And he contrasts these two angels with the angels that were sent to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. Angels were sent to the Garden of Eden to drive humanity out and to post watch to prevent them from coming back in. And fittingly enough, maybe symbolically, angels are now found in a different garden. Only this time, they're inviting humanity. And they're not preventing humanity from perfection. They're declaring a state of perfection. This gentleman, Baumgart, highlighted the immediate effect of the resurrection. That when there was once condemnation for humanity, now there is salvation and forgiveness. And when there was once death, like the angels in the Garden of Eden, there's now life proclaimed by the angels in the Garden of the Tomb. And when there was once captivity and resistance, there is now liberty The resurrection has an immediate effect. Well, unfortunately, the disciples don't believe in this moment. They will. But at this point, verse 8, the women are the only ones who have remembered the words of Christ. They go and they relay all this information to the other 11 disciples and to the rest who are with them. But by verse 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. They won't believe until Christ appears to them. And when he does and when they're convinced, it will be the central theme of their message. All throughout Acts, they're proclaiming a resurrected Christ. For them, it is... The resurrection of Christ that makes him worth believing in and following after and worth devotion. It's the foundation for the very gospel that they're proclaiming. It's very rare that you find them preaching Christ without mentioning his resurrection. But by this time, they're not believing. Despite the credible testimony of these women. That it's credible, it's cohesive, it's built upon what Christ already said about Himself. Luke even includes their names in 
verse 10, Mary 1, Joanna, Mary 2, and others. Keeping with this theme of Deuteronomy 19.15, that uh, uh, claim can only be established on the account of two or three witnesses. Here are the three witnesses. But the disciples see this as an idle tale. They respond in unbelief. And by extension, they are treating Christ's teachings the same way. Calling Christ's teachings an idle tale. Responding in unbelief. Peter, in verse 12, is the only one who seemingly is somewhat interested. The man who ran from Christ the night before, or a few nights before, is now running to the tomb. John records this account actually in quite a bit of detail. Luke condenses it down to one verse. Peter is running. John is running with him. They stoop. They look in. Peter goes in. He sees the linen cloths by, him, by themselves. Another testimony to Christ's resurrection. But he goes home marveling at what has happened. Not exercising faith. Peter won't exercise faith until Christ appears to him on the beach. Which tells me as glorious and as wonderful as the declaration of the, these two angels is, and as central and foundational as the resurrection is, and as life-giving as the resurrection is, there will simply be many people who are like the disciples and not believe it. They will see the facts, they'll hear the facts, just like these disciples. And they'll chalk it up as an idle tale. They might be persuaded by logic and reason. They might have evidence pile up. But their eyes will remain darkened. I wonder how many people might consider all the glories of the resurrection... And much like these disciples, be totally unmoved by it. A resurrected Savior. One who is living. One who has gone to death and overcome. The great enemy of humanity, death because of sin, has been vanquished because of Christ. Access to God. Justification, a faith that's not futile, a preaching that's not in vain, no longer in our sins, a resurrection life waiting for us, born again, proving himself to be true in his teachings, in his work, in his life, a risen Savior, and yet calloused hearts that cannot see it. Or dare I say, minds that are too familiar to be moved by it. It's a tragedy, isn't it? That these women, however many there are, the three that are at least mentioned, can have such a remarkable account to relay to the disciples. And yet, they respond to it as nonsense. And I don't know that our response would be far off if we responded without repentance or adoration or praise. 
If we come to the resurrection of Christ with anything less, then we too, in effect, treat it as an idle tale. Just a good story in the Bible. Pretty important. One of my favorites. But not life-changing. We might profess belief with our mouth, even assent to intellectual belief, but our belief is not far from the unbelief of the disciples. We might respond like Peter, curious enough to go and check it out for ourselves, but walking away more marveling than believing. More in wonder or more in perplexity than in faith. The truth is, facts don't bring faith. We can try to pick apart the resurrection account all that we want. But the only thing that brings faith is having your eyes open to God by God. Yes, we persuade men and women. But we plead with God to stir our hearts to see. To help us be like these women. To remember the words of the Lord. And to listen to the testimony of the angels in Scripture. And to be moved by it. To proclaim it. And to share it. And to tell. Oh God keep us from being like the disciples in this passage. We need to see that Jesus is not like any other man-made God. Or any other man-made religion. He's alive. Tasting death but overcoming it. So that we might have life too. Death is never the end of human existence. Life continues for every human being beyond death. Again, John MacArthur says, Death is merely the doorway into eternity through which all must pass. And you pass in Christ to eternal life because of His resurrection. Or eternal suffering for denying his resurrection. This text is that important and what we do with it is that important. And I believe the only proper response to the Lord's resurrection is one of repentance. Repentance that leads to faith for the unbeliever. Or repentance that leads to devotion and praise for the believer. How many of us need to confess before Christ our stale and stagnant religion and ask for a fresh breath of His Spirit to strengthen our faith in light of His resurrection, to embolden our devotion in light of His resurrection, to impassion our worship in light of His resurrection, to increase our service in light of His resurrection. This is a text that if is true, and we most certainly know that it is, means Christ is worthy of our complete and total surrender. And repentance is the first appropriate response to that. And this resurrection changes your life. 
And for those who haven't been changed by it, repentance is still your right response. A repentance that leads to saving faith. Believing on the Lord Jesus that His Word is true, resurrection is real, and He is the only one who can save. It's been my prayer this week that that's how we would respond. Father, again, so much can be said here. Perhaps more should have been said. Perhaps less should have been said. I do not know. But what I do know is that you can take your word and use it as you see fit in any way that you so desire and choose. And it is my prayer that you would. Father, we can relay this message in this text over and over and over and people still respond as the disciples first did. Unbelief. We can try to persuade. We can present the facts. We can talk about things like justification and the, re- the removal of your wrath, the hope of eternal life, the power that you display in overcoming death. We can talk about all those things, but Father, we need you first and foremost to work in the hearts of us, our people, to see the resurrection as it's intended to be seen. Make us like these women, even if we have to be frightened first. Make us like these women to behold and see with the eyes of our hearts that you are a living God. To be reminded that it's all happened according to your plan. And to believe and share it. Well, Father, would you do these works for our good so that in our good, in our repentance, you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.